What is going on? Welcome to Canel and Bell. Danny Canel and Raja Bell with you for the next hour. Breaking out a ton of stuff we got to get to, Raja. We got Thursday night football. Wasn't the prettiest game, but there was possibly a star in the making. We'll do a little bit NBA, five-star NBA questions. We'll give you our picks for the games of the weekend. So a ton of stuff that we have to get to. I am in New York City for some TV work. I know, Raj, you're going to be super dialed in because I'll actually be on studio coverage around the FIU game, your alma mater versus Louisiana Tech on CBS Sports Network tonight at 8 p.m. I know you're going to be watching every single play and especially the pregame and studio show, right? You're dialed in? Every snap, completely dialed in, dude. FIU, true blue. All right, for sure. Make sure you stay up for the post-game show after Inside College Football, which probably starts around 11.30. I don't know if I'm as quite as confident that you'll be dialed into that one. <laughs> um, last night's Thursday night game, right? It was not the prettiest product that the NFL has put out there. It kind of feels like it has for the past several years. I think we got spoiled last year. Fox hopped in the mix, and I think they had in their TV deal, hey, we're going to get some primetime premier matchups. This is the third time we've had checks. Jags versus Titans, and it kind of is exactly what you would expect from that game. It wasn't the prettiest. The weather did come into play, but Raj, did you get your tickets to the Min Show? As I did. Joey has dubbed him. He's pretty no. special, right? Yeah, it's cool, and I kind of gauge it off of you know, I my kids didn't necessarily want to see the game, but we were all like my two older boys and myself were sitting around trying to see the first few series. Um, of the Jaguars on offense because of Gardner Minshew. And so I think that spoke, um, you, you know, to, to, you know, how anticipated like he is when you've got younger kids sitting there wanting to see what he was going to look like. And he didn't disappoint early. I mean, he moved the ball, he made some really nice throws. Uh, the conversation, I think, and the biggest thing that I took away from the game on both, both from both teams perspective is what are you going to do at the quarterback position? And that's a massive question. I think Gardner Minshew is going to take this position from Nick Foles. You already see like the fan enthusiasm. You already see some results with a win in this one. Of course, it comes down to what is he going to do as far as, uh, you know, wins. Wins are the bottom line. If they start losing, if they lose five or six in a row, they'll go right back to Nick Foles when he comes back and he's healthy. But here's the thing. I think Minshew is a little playmaker. Like I think he finds knacks for making plays. He's an extremely accurate passer. He's got some athleticism. You know who he reminds me of? And it's actually his picture that we have up on uh, CBS Sports HQ, which you can look at it. He actually kind of looks like Jake Plummer. He was Jake Plummer was my former teammate with the Broncos, one of my best friends. <laughs> like, he was in my wedding. But on and off the field, like, Jake Plummer was not the biggest, most physically imposing quarterback, but he just always had a really, like, tough, competitive spirit. He was really, like, free spirit as well, where there, he has a pretty good perspective on life. Like, hey... There are bigger things in life than football. I'm going to focus and I'm going to compete and I want to win with everything I can, but you're going to have some fun while you're doing at it. And teammates gravitate towards that on the playing field, right? You have that sort of infectious personality where it might sound silly. Hey, you're stretching in a jock strap and it's like, but guys look at that and they're like, okay, well, what is this guy really going to be about when he steps in the huddle? And I think that's the biggest thing about Gardner Minshew when he steps in the huddle, he makes those guys, whether it's offensive linemen, running backs or wide receivers, he makes them want to play for him. Like he has a very infectious, energetic personality. And that translates. Like that, those are one of those intangibles that you really can't judge when a guy's coming out of a combine, right? You can see how far does he throw the ball? How tall is he? How much does he weigh? What does he run the 40? But you never really know what a guy's leadership style is going to be and how effective it can be. And I think with Gardner Minshew, he has this sort of X factor 
which is why people are falling in love with him. And I think the Jags are going to fall in love with him so much. And the fact that he's, you know, incrementally, exponentially, excuse me, uh, cheaper than Nick Foles. I think they'll be willing to say, you know what, let's roll with Gardner Minshew. Yeah, um, it is interesting when you get a kind of free-spirited guy like that who kind of, you know, it does, doesn't mind being, you know, the jokester and the guy who kind of lightens the mood up. Um, it, it becomes then, can he produce when he gets in the huddle? Because if you got that guy and he's a clown and he doesn't produce in the huddle, then he's just a clown, right? But when yep. you got a guy who can be kind of the life of the party and he's producing and, you know, and he's, and he's effective when he gets in the game and in the huddle, now you've got something special working. I do think there's a third component there. Um, you know, when, when you've got a guy, um, uh, and you don't know much about him, and then you go and you do your due diligence as a teammate to figure out where he came from. You know, they were telling us where Gardner Minshew came from. The fact that he'd been to like four schools, he was at Troy, he was at a JUCO, uh, he was just gonna be a third string QB at Alabama because he wanted to be a coach and then decided, you know, after talking to Mike Leach that he had opportunity to play. You know, guys kind of, guys kind of buy into that, right? A guy who's kind of self-made, had to pull himself up by the bootstraps. And so when you get three of those components in place, like life of the party, self-made man produces I mean you've got something really special there and then you know I, I I talked about preseason I'm no quarterback guru or anything like that but I watch Kyler Murray Daniel Jones to a certain degree um they scripted offense for those guys to make easy throws get it out of their hand you know kind of script a receiver open for you so to speak this guy was making plays with the ball like putting the ball in little tiny windows where you know, that guy's not really open. You're kind of throwing him open, giving only him a chance to catch the ball. Those in my mind, like not, uh, those are big boy throws. Those are six, seven, eight year vet throws, like, you know, elite type quarterback throws. And whether he can do that over the course of a season, that still remains to be seen. But at least for right now, you know, that looks special. It looks like you, like he has a knack for doing that stuff and excitement is a real thing when, when you're the head of a franchise. If you're going to be winning a Super Bowl or winning an NBA championship, that's one thing. Anything short of that, which becomes every other team in that league, you better be exciting and you better have something to sell. You better have something to have people hanging on the edges of their seat to see. And I think you might have that with Gardner Minshew. We have seen quarterbacks with a lot more cachet lose their jobs because a lower-drafted quarterback comes in and plays well. Dak Prescott, right? Fourth-round yeah. pick. They had Tony Romo. was kind of, you know, had been injured. They start winning. They say, we're rolling with Dak. Um, Matt Flynn was a quarterback who didn't have as much career success, but he was paid by the Seattle Seahawks to come in there and be their franchise quarterback. Russell Wilson comes in third round pick, takes his job. I yep. think that's exactly what's playing out here with Jacksonville. You're going to see Gardner Minshew as a six round draft pick take Nick Foles job from him because he is going to go in there and succeed. And the other thing you mentioned, Roger, he can make all those throws, but maybe even most importantly, he doesn't turn the ball over, something that Blake Bortles really struggle with, you know, avoiding a disastrous play. He's a pretty smart, cerebral player uh, in that spot. And with that defense, which we're going to get to in just a minute, you're going to be like some games. You might not have to make that crazy, great throw, but you can just not make the disastrous throw with that defense, which still has some really important pieces to it. I know Joey wants to hop in. What's up, Joey? Yeah, I mean, Raj, I'm with you. I'm not a quarterback expert by any means either, but. There was a few things. There was one other thing that stuck out to me last night. He completed 66% of his passes, and that's with D.D. Westbrook. D.D. Westbrook should be taking Gardner Minshew out to dinner, buy him something as an apology gift today. He dropped at least three passes that I saw, a 22-yard touchdown in the end zone in his hands, a wide-open pass over the middle that probably would have gone for another 30 yards. 
the and with the wind swirling last night, there's I, I'm excited about that. I don't know. I I I benched Jameis Winston for him at the last second against the Titans defense last night in my two hundred dollar fantasy league because I'm excited about the kid. And D.D. Westbrook didn't help him out at all. Well, D.D. Westbrook <laughs> should be taking me out to dinner because I started his behind last night and he did drop those three balls. I love it. You guys throwing your fantasy picks under the bus. I will say this in the conditions that are out there when it's really windy and nasty, when there's gusts, sometimes it does throw out the ball. Full disclosure, I didn't get to watch the whole game because my hotel where I'm at in New York didn't get the game for some reason. I could not find it. I have 80 channels and didn't have the game. It was driving me nuts. <laughs> but I'm looking at the conditions saying, all right, maybe we give D.D. Breastbook a pass. You guys sound like you're much more dialed in. So maybe that wasn't the case. The other thing, talking about their defense, is Jalen Ramsey was pretty special last night. Uh, second on the team with tackles and nine. Obviously, you don't want him to be a tackler on that squad. But you still know what he's capable of in the pass game. They had nine sacks against Marcus Mariota, 14 quarterback hits. This defense is all of a sudden returning to its form, with which had them in that AFC championship game. I know you look at the stats and, hey, how do teams start off? How can they bounce back? This team could be on to something. But, Raj, when you look at this, if you're Tom Coughlin and you're Doug Marone, you're floating out there two first-round picks for Jalen Ramsey. That's the trade that you want to go. I get that's a, like, hey, you're, maybe you're using that to appease Jalen Ramsey and say, hey, we're trying, but ultimately they have to be trying to salvage this relationship because he is so supremely talented. Yes, this, this was from the start. Um, we're going to try our best to make this work. Um, buy ourselves a little time, float out that we're, you know, we, we're, we're shopping him. Um, you get him back on the field. I do think that is a, a, a pretty big deal. The fact that, you know, he came out said that as long as he's in Jacksonville, he's going to be the best teammate he can. He's going out there trying to win games. I think that's a huge step, and it's a huge uh, sign for the front office. This could be a salvageable thing. Now, the question is whether they want to or not, and I am of the opinion that if you have a cornerback like that, and I forget the other cornerback's name, but he's pretty good too. You have two young, really good corners. Um, Calais Campbell was, was wreaking havoc last night. If you have an opportunity for this defense to be what it was a few years ago, you, you don't just get rid of Jalen Ramsey over what happened on the sideline. Now, if you've got, um, irreparable damage that's been done over the course of time and you, and the two sides are so far apart that you'll never be able to salvage the relationship, that's one thing. Anything short of that, we try to make this work. And Jalen coming out, uh, saying that he didn't really want to talk about it, saying that he's there to do his job. And as long as he's on the, the Jaguars, he will do his job. I think that speaks to where he is. Um, and, and there being an opportunity for you guys to get on the same page and not have to blow that thing up right now. Then ultimately, you got to figure out how to get the man his money because he's worth it. Yeah, absolutely. And that's probably the biggest question there. Maybe the only way they can make Jalen happy is to give him a new deal, which he wants. Um, AJ Boye is the other uh, defensive back you were talking about. And in a pass-happy league, the way we're seeing this league go, especially in the AFC with the Patriots and Chiefs being the, you know, the tops of the, the conference right there, You've got to be able to defend through the air, and they've got two really good ones. I think they should try to keep it. I will say this. We throw Tom Coughlin under the bus, and deservedly so sometimes for seeing old school, like, hey, he's got to, you know, he seems like he's a little bit detached from the times. Remember what he did as coach of the New York Giants. He was not well received by them. They weren't responding to him. He had Coughlin time. He was finding guys, and he lightened up a little bit, and he's kind of had a personality change somewhat, and it got the Giants a Super Bowl. Like, he, they responded to him because he changed. I think it might be time for Tom Coffin to look in the mirror and say, all right, there's a disconnect between me and Jalen Ramsey and Doug Marone. Like there's something going on there. Maybe it's just a personality difference where I'm old school, he's new school, and maybe I can make a compromise and help this thing work out. Ultimately, I'd love to see that happen. But it seems like everybody is just assuming Jalen is gone. You know, when you hear the Schefters and Rappaport, they're all saying, hey, he's most likely going to trade it today. 
They're probably right, but I still would think that maybe there's an opportunity this could work out. It wasn't Gardner Minshew wasn't the biggest name quarterback that people were talking about last night, Roz. It was actually Tom Brady. The game was ugly. As I mentioned, there were a ton of penalties, ugly ones out there. You had all kind of holding penalties, offsides, little things. So Tom Brady took to Twitter, which he doesn't do a lot, and he had a very simple tweet. Too many penalties. Just let us play. Followed it up with, I'm turning off this game. I can't watch these ridiculous penalties anymore. People were talking about officiating has been a big storyline this year. Tony Dungy actually chimed in as well. And I thought his was pretty good. It was pretty funny. He said there were 15 total penalties in the first half. Uh, after, oh, this is where he called out the announcer, said, hey, maybe it's not um, the officials. It's the, the sloppy play on the field because we haven't had preseason. I do think it's a combination of both uh, because I do think the officials, especially early in the season, they want to set a tone. They want to try to clean things up. They want to try to make sure there have been penalties that have been emphasized in the offseason. They're paying attention to their bosses. Hey, we're going to crack down on holding. Defensive coaches have been complaining about holding along the offensive line. They're very attuned to it. So they're going to say, all right, we're going to set a tone and try to set it for the year. In the last couple of years, I remember having this conversation with you and others Hey, officials need to dial it down. They're protecting the quarterbacks too much. They're calling too many penalties. Typically, they set the tone, and then they walk it back somewhat. Even in the second half of that game, after Brady's tweet, there were zero penalties in the third quarter, and then five in the fourth. They dialed it back somewhat. I don't think they were paying attention to Brady. But I do think there's going to be a massive overreaction. But my hope is that they're setting a tone, and then they're going to let the guys play a little bit more. And, oh, by the way, I think the play will clean up somewhat, too. Yeah, I, I think you're spot on. I, you hit all the points. I mean, it, and Tony Dungy's right. Uh, the, the less you play in preseason, the less live full speed reps you get, uh, the more rush you have to knock off once real games start. Like that's a, that's a real thing. Um, there's also a set of directives that come from whoever's running your officials, um, league or what, what have you about, you know, points of emphasis coming into a year. Those typically get po- called. Uh, or whistled more often early in the season, and then they kind of taper them off once people kind of get accustomed to that being the way it goes. Uh, the holding specifically to me, the two calls that are really interesting to me, I'm over the pass interference one. It's the hold, because when I watch football, it looks like you could call a hold on every damn play. I mean, yep. I, I don't know how you, you know, subjectively judge, like, or... or I don't even know what I'm trying to say here other than if you wanted to call a hold, you could literally call a hold on any play in the NFL. So the ones that get whistled versus the ones that don't get whistled, I'll never really understand that, whether it's outside the pads or inside the pads. Holding is holding, dude. Who cares if I hold them inside the pads versus outside the pads? It's absolutely ridiculous. Uh, and then the second one continues to revolve around the quarterback. There was a play last night where the linebacker from you know, Tennessee came in. I mean, hit Gardner Minshew. It was a clean hit. Hit him with his shoulder. Um, you know, went to take him to the ground and Superman in the air threw his hands back as to show the ref before you even get your mind made up to call this penalty. I am not putting body weight on him. Proceeded to land next to him and roll off of him and his 15 yard penalty. Like that is a very, very real, it's a real thing for defenders. I think their livelihood is on the line to some degree with whether or not, you know, you can continue to go out there and take Shots at a quarterback, clean ones, that is, because that's how they get paid, you know? Oh, it's ridiculous. It's so uh, Jamal Adams went in on the officials after their game, the Jets game the other night, saying, hey, this is supposed to be tackle football. Uh, you've seen DeAndre Hopkins. Remember, he had made an interception, tackled a guy pretty hard, brought him down. They called a flag on that one. It is really hard. The game, they are trying to make it safe 
And all of a sudden, it's not a safe game. If you make it safe, it's going to lose a lot of its attraction. And it's going to turn into seven on seven. And it's going to turn into flag football. So I would say to the NFL, hopefully they dial it back. And as far as holding goes, you are spot on. They could call it every single play. I think you should just call it when it's egregious, when you see a grab of a jersey, when you see like a lot where the officials looking at it and it's, hey, it's obvious. And all these rules that implementing uh, to protect the quarterback, you know, it would protect the quarterback probably the most if they let him get away with holding the offensive lineman. You know, like they, right. they, they actually can hold the guys and it keeps that extra second longer. And it's not so obvious to a fan when they're watching, like, oh, that's a soft game. Look at them. They're not even letting, they're not even letting them hit the quarterback. If you let them hold, those hits won't even happen as much. So I think that might be something the league needs to look into too. Do you think a conspiracy theorist, do you think somebody from the NFL saw Brady's tweet and said, uh oh, and the, the, the Aikman and Buck were talking about it a lot? Do you think there's a bat phone that they call the head official and say, hey, dial it back on the holding? Are you, are you buying into a conspiracy theory? I'm I'm not buying into that, but I do buy into the fact, um, uh, or I buy into the possibility that they went into the locker room, the officials that is during halftime, um, and realized how many penalties. I don't think they knew like in real time. I think they may have sat back and said, "Oh man, we called however many penalties in the first half. Let's try to not be the show in the second half." I think that happens sometimes. Yeah, for sure. Uh, it'll be interesting. Uh, Joey just hit me up with a note. According to the Jags' ownership, they'd be willing to pay Jalen his money. So maybe this thing isn't, uh, you know, maybe it's not impossible yet. Uh, Jalen said there were some things said that was disrespectful when he went on that uh, the podcast um, with um, Nate Burleson. And he did say he was offended. He felt like there's some disrespectful things. You know what makes you get over that disrespect? A lot of dollar bills. So maybe the Jags will get something done and they'll be able to salvage it. I hope so. I don't like seeing guys, you know, um, you know, getting forced out of a situation or there's a bad breakup. But hey, players have more power and Jalen's wielding it. Maybe it'll be another instance where a player wins and good for that if he's able to get his money. This is Tony Kornheiser's show. I'm Tony. We expected someone else. So what exactly is the show about? Hmm, I don't know. It's a sports show nominally. Football's over, but we're finally at a point where things matter in college basketball and baseball season is on deck. Greatest three words in the English language, pitchers and catchers. We have some of the best voices come on and explain what matters or what makes an upset, like Ryan does, <laughs> nine over eight. No, that's not an upset. No, yeah, it is, Bob. And if you're lucky, I might just tell you about my search for discounted sleep pants or my worries about what my dog just ate. Listen on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, welcome back to Kenel and Bell on this Friday. We'll give you some picks for the upcoming weekend in just about 10 minutes. Our NBA five-star questions in just a couple of minutes. J.J. Redick, never afraid to speak his mind. He's got a podcast. There's a lot of stuff. Is not afraid to hold back. Every once in a while when guys are like that, I'm guilty of this, uh, you'll say something and people will be like, what? Is he crazy? So he was on the record and said that the Dunk City Clippers, which he was part of, should have won at least one NBA championship. Those Clippers never made it to a conference finals with CP3, uh, Blake Griffin, uh, DJ, and Redick. They were eliminated three times in the first round in six seasons they were together. His quote was, we did not do a great job of, we, we did not do a great job of not being annoyed by each other. That's kind of a double negative there, but you, I don't know. I look at it and say, well, you just, you didn't, you didn't even come close. So how could you say you should have won at least one? Maybe talent wise, yes, but it's more of an indictment of what was going on that team and the lack of chemistry. Um, yeah, I'm not, I don't share JJ's opinion that they should have won a championship. Um, I think that they were one of the teams during that period of time that had enough talent to win a championship. When you talk about 
you know, where the NBA is today, it's more of a duo league. But a couple years ago, it was, you know, a big three type of league. If, if you have, you know, Chris Paul, DeAndre, Jordan, uh, Blake Griffin, um, you got JJ and some other nice pieces around them. Yeah, you know, there's a case to be made that, that you had enough talent to win it. Um, not 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 getting out of the first round as much as you did is, is really, really interesting. And I do think it speaks to, you know, having guys whose windows of opportunity don't necessarily match up, right? They, those guys were still at a point in their career where, and it looked from the outside, where they were more concerned with the me than the we. Um now I wasn't there. I, I don't have I don't have anyone in that locker room that can corroborate that. But you know, you're in LA. It's it's kind of you know you got a showtimey type of team. It's a highlight reel type of team. Um, everybody's trying to get paid and, and establish themselves as like a, a, a all NBA first teamer. Um, and when those are your concerns, and and sometimes in cases like that where you may have to fight your teammate for that spotlight, uh, it can lead to some dissension, you know, within the locker room, and and quite frankly, stop you from achieving you know all that you could. Chris Paul's critics would look at him and say, hey, he's one of the biggest reasons why that team underachieved. I think it's unfair, though, with those personalities, those egos that were in there. I don't think you can put it on just one guy. Do you or do you think it was down to him being the point guard that, hey, more of that blame should have fallen on him? No, I don't think that's fair to Chris Paul. I mean, he was the leader of that team. So, I mean, every every time, you know, your team falls short and you're the leader, there's going to be a natural, you know, uh, uh, amount of blame that you have to shoulder. I do think there were some flaws in those teams, though. Like, you know, they were really good, you know, up top with the ball and Chris Paul and obviously Blake Griffin at the rim and DeAndre was, was, was at the rim as well. Blake Griffin has rounded out his game since then. He started to do it while he was with the Clippers where he can provide a little scoring punch from different places on the floor. Obviously, they ran J.J. Redick off a lot of screens and he shot the ball well. He spaced the floor. They never really had a great wing player to kind of complement those bigs and the, and the, you know, and the point guard that they had. So there were some flaws on that team as well. It's not like that team was was just perfectly made and should have won. They just had enough talent where you could make the argument that they could have won. Uh, but I do think it's unfair to some degree that Chris would shoulder the blame for that. Uh, bigger disappointment, this Clippers team that J.J. Raddick is referencing or the Thunder team, which had KD, uh, Russ, and James Harden on it? The Thunder team, for me, I mean, it, that's a tough question, right? Because the Thunder team went to the finals. So you could right. say that they they actually you know achieved more, um, but I thought that Thunder team was a better team than than that than the Clipper team, if that makes sense. So bigger disappointment probably the Clippers. Let me walk that back. Probably the Clippers because there was very minimal success there in terms of winning in the playoffs. At least Oklahoma City got to the to the championship and and, and wound up losing. Uh, but I do think Oklahoma City was the bigger, the, I mean the better team. So they should have achieved more than the Clipper team. Yeah, Raj, I agree with you on that. I, I, I went back and forth, actually, when I wrote this question down as to who I thought was a bigger disappointment. Immediately, my reaction was, it's the Thunder. No question, because of how good they could have been. But the Clippers never made it out of the second round. And right. I also thought about it like, you, you made a great point that Blake's rounded out his game a lot. But think about if you, in the NBA this year, the way it's constructed, if you had Chris Paul, J.J. Redick, and Blake Griffin, you're going to the playoffs, and you're have a chance to make it out of the first round and you might have a chance to make who knows and that team when they were all in their essentially their prime couldn't make it out of the second round so on the court definitely i think a more disappointing team but i do think we will look back in 15 years or so and say sam presti's blunder of what he did with that team will be one of the most disappointing things in nba history uh i i listen not being able to keep 
three MVPs um, before they were all MVPs on that roster is going to be, you know, part of his legacy. Like, that's tough. That's really, really tough. Uh, the Clipper situation, um, I agree with you. Like, right, you know, the problem, Joe, is, and it's, you know, when you're building teams like that, DeAndre and Blake, although Blake had the room to grow that game, which he's done, at the time when they started at its inception, they were kind of the same guy. Like they were, you know, they were rim run guys, get to the rim, throw it up type of players. Um, that presents like, it presents some problems for you offensively. And, you know, when you're not well-rounded enough to have a guy out there that can get you buckets on the perimeter. Because J.J. Redick is only catch and shoot. Um, you know, he, he's better now, but at the time he was relatively catch and shoot. Those guys were straight rim run guys. And then Chris Paul was kind of like, you know, do everything, you know, uh, point guard. I thought you really could have used a, a wing out there, someone versatile that could get you buckets, could do some things in ISO situations, um, could create off the bounce himself so it all didn't have to depend on Chris Paul doing it. So I thought there was a real big hole with that Clipper team. Um, but man, that, that, that Oklahoma City team, if you had kept that together, I don't know financially how that would have ever worked, but that would have been scary for the NBA. We'd be looking at a completely different league right now. Yeah, your point about the wing players is uh, it's something I've been I've talked about a lot in the past in in these discussions is that I think that that team actually proves the point like point guards are important, but it's the deepest position in the league. There's not a big difference. Like, is there that big of a difference between Chris Paul and a Drew Holiday, who's probably like the you know tenth or eleventh best point guard? But there's a huge drop off at the wing position in the NBA. So once you get past the Kawhi, Paul George, Giannis, LeBron. There's a gigantic drop off, and that team just would never have gotten it done because it's a wing players league. So it's a great point. Yeah, nice yeah Joey brought up a good one. He's, he was G chat me here and said, "Which thirty for thirty would you like over which team during that time?" Cool. I think it's a really great question. Me personally, I've always been fascinated with the Russ Westbrook KD relationship, and then you throw in James Harden in the mix there. I would love to know the reality of how it was, how they interacted, what they were like together. Was, you know, Kevin Durant, who's been kind of polarizing. I would love to see that. But I would also want to see Chris Paul and his personality, how his leadership style translated with that Clippers team. So both of them, I would say my answer would be both. I want to see a 30 for 30 on both with everybody given all the goods. Yeah, that would be that would be really interesting. Um, I'd probably lean towards Oklahoma City, too, just because the three of them are three bigger stars um, yeah. in, my, in my mind. And I'd, I'd really I'm fascinated by KD. I don't know why. Um, I just want to see how he works with people you know because it's two stops now where he left kind of on a little bit of a sour note and kind of had some snarky things to say on the way out and he's so gifted and he's so good and he comes across as such a good dude like I don't really know him like that I'd just be really interested to see his relationships behind the scenes just to see what that looks like you know maybe maybe it's not him maybe it's the places that he's been but I'd like to see it but don't forget that if we got the the Clippers 30 for 30, we would get even more in depth into the DeAndre Jordan free agency fiasco where they locked him <laughs> in the house and wouldn't let him leave. And all the and Paul Pierce sending a, an emoji of a, or of a clip art emoji and all that. Uh, that would be fascinating to see more on. That would be. I don't know. Did you did you happen to watch the Dennis Rodman 30 for 30? Because it was fascinating. I didn't. There were some things I didn't details in there that I didn't even know. I didn't know he didn't play much high school basketball and he was out of high school for two years before going to junior college. Like I knew and, and then just recalling this type of stardom that he had. If you haven't seen it, Raj, you gotta go watch it. It's pretty fascinating. Yeah, I've seen like three quarters of it. Admittedly, I fell asleep kind of on it. I was watching it one <laughs> night. But it is yeah. fascinating stuff, man. Like I had no idea 
uh, about that brother's backstory. Some of that stuff is wild. Yeah, it is for sure. Uh, all right. So there was L.A. Times had a really in-depth article on the Kawhi Leonard uh, move to the Clippers and how it went down. Uh, some really interesting behind-the-scenes details, like how Kawhi went to Doc's home in Malibu, but then made the Lakers come to his hotel room, and how Kawhi um, said to Doc and uh, Steve Ballmer, the owner, he said, I want to play for you, and he pointed at Doc. And then he said, I want to play for you, and he looked at uh, Steve Ballmer, said, I love the things you do and what you stand for, but your team is not good enough, If and if you don't change your team, I'm not coming and so the Clippers had a list of guys they could potentially target with Kawhi. And when he saw Paul George, he said, I want to play with him. And it's like, it's a great look at behind the scenes. And maybe that was, that was the piece that nobody saw coming. It was like, okay, that makes a lot more sense now. Yeah. We, I, we were on here. I mean, I don't know how long ago it was now, but you know, of the desire or of the possible destinations that Kawhi Leonard uh, could wind up in. The Clippers never really spoke to me as much as everywhere else because I said, I don't think their roster is good enough to drop Kawhi into it and for them to vie for a championship with just the addition of Kawhi. Uh, I never saw the possibility of getting Paul George um, there. I just, I didn't see that. And so for me, it, I got to give a lot of credit to the Clippers. My man Trent Redden, who was with me in Cleveland, he was the assistant GM in Cleveland. He's with the Clippers now. Um, for that staff, whoever did it, to have that preparation level and have that list anticipating Kawhi saying, I need someone else to come in here with me. And at his request of that, to f hand him a list of names for him to choose from, it's pretty, it's pretty damn smart, right? It's pretty well prepared on their part, uh, to have that in their back pocket. Like, yo, dude, we've already, we've already thought about that. Here you go. Here's a list of players. And I do think that him and, and, and Paul George, Kawhi and Paul George are going to be very complimentary to each other. Um, so that's, that's just fantastic behind, behind the scenes. Look at it. Yeah, it was really good. If you had, go check out the LA Times because it's just some details there. Like if you see how a deal like that goes down, we talk about it all the time. We read the tweets from Woj and every other newsbreaker in the NBA, but to actually hear behind the scenes how it went down, it's pretty fascinating stuff. Uh, right here on Canelo Bell, we want you, our listeners. We appreciate you. We love you listening. We would love it if you would go rate the show, give us a five star review in the review section. Ask us some NBA questions specifically for Raj. You guys have been giving us some really good feedback. If you subscribe, just unsubscribe and subscribe again. It's kind of a little trick we use. To try to help our ratings there, our rankings in the poll. Uh, we had a good one the other day from awesomeness number two. Yeah. Uh, for you, Raj. Everyone talks about rookies for the upcoming season, but what about all the sophomores, guys, in their second year? Who do you think is really going to establish themselves as an NBA player this year from last year's rookie class? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. And I I mean I there were some good rookies. There are some names out there. Uh three off the top of my head that I think could take another step this year would be Jaron Jackson. I mean, he was a high pick, um, but in the absence of Marcus Gasol and Mike Conley, more opportunity there. Um, he was the youngest player in the draft last year. He already, he had a good rookie year. As that body fills out, like going to become a much more physical player. So the rebound numbers will go up. Um, average about 13 and 13.8 and four and a half rebounds a game last year. He's going to get better as a three point shooter as well. And he's about, you know, he's seven foot. I don't know what that wingspan is. Um, I think the state, the stage is set for him, um, uh, with John Morant there in, 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 uh, Memphis to really, uh, take off this year. So I think that's one name that I would look for, uh, to pop this year. The next name would be Kevin Herter, kind of a, 
you know, combo guard, kind of two, three plays in Atlanta, really shot the ball well. And I know they, they, they added DeAndre Jordan and Cam Reddish. I mean, uh, DeAndre Hunter and Cam Reddish to the mix this year. They've got Trey Young, uh, John Collins. His niche is going to be more of a, of a coming off screens, kind of spot shooting sniper type of player, you know, a la Clay Thompson, maybe if you're comparing, uh, the young, uh, Trey to, to, to Steph Curry, he could be the Clay Thompson to Steph sort of role. Uh, so I think look for him to have a big season there amidst all of those names. I think he'll pop also. Uh, and then the last one is Shea Gillis Alexander. You know, had a great year. The Clippers were better after they got with Blake Griffin and, and company last year, believe it or not. Uh, he was a big reason why playing off the ball a little bit and on the ball with Chris Paul there in Oklahoma City is really going to allow him to kind of settle in, not have too much pressure on him right away. There's not a better mentor in the league for kind of a long type of combo guard who may not naturally be a pure point than to have one of the best points, um, even though he's older and Chris Paul to kind of work with day to day, run the second team when Chris Paul goes to the bench. Um, there'll be a, no- a nice platform for him there, a nice canvas for him to expand his game. So those are three names I think can make a big jump this year. Good stuff. Keep those questions coming. Find us on Apple Podcasts. Give us a review, five stars, and ask an NBA question. Or you compliment us, too, if you want. Just don't bash us. All right, welcome back to Kinnell and Bell. So, unfortunately, Antonio Brown is the story that just simply will not go away. Uh, I honestly, Raj, don't know if he survives this latest scandal, if there is truth in it. Now, these are accusations, but if these text messages are confirmed, I don't know how the NFL or the Patriots, for that matter, keep him around with some of the things that are being said. So he has a second accuser, and there was a long piece in Sports Illustrated that came out uh, just a few days ago. So that article comes out, and now the second accuser, who was really the focal point of this second um, in this Sports Illustrated piece, she has now released, quote, intimidating text messages uh, that are supposedly – from Antonio Brown. And it was a group text that were a couple of his friends and his attorney were supposedly, uh, you know, allegedly included on this text message. And there are some pretty nasty things that are said on here. The first text, really sad. You want to make up a BS story to the world. Thought you had more integrity and respect for yourself. Must be really hard times for you to make up some stuff. Money, super sad. This third text, this her in the text, Eric B, who's referring to the accuser being in the group text, Let's look up her background history, see how broke this girl is. Basically cried broke for opportunities. I let paint my room. I can't even read this stuff. right. I'm struggling to get through this. I flew out now to hear this so sad. The person that created the group text, who was assumed to be Antonio Brown, then posted pictures of the accuser with her kids and said, quote, those are kids. And if, Eric, she's awfully broke, clearly. But probably the most egregious aspect or phrase in this one is easy says let's look up her background history and try to use that against her to make her look like she's a money grab it's just an awful look for antonio brown and i just wonder how the patriots can continue answering questions saying we're just worried about football because right now it looks like this thing is escalating and antonio brown just cannot stop getting into trouble yeah um this one is if Antonio Brown is in fact sending those text messages, then I mean I don't know what to tell you, bro. Like you, you, right. you know, you you just continue to mess up. Um, I think you use the word allegedly there. Like so, I I what I don't want to do, um, and what I want to be cautious about is like passing judgment on something that I don't know to be a fact yet, right? And so right. it's very hard for me to do that in, in, on either side of the ball. Like I, I am I'm. 
Not saying that he didn't do it. I don't know for a fact that he did do it. Um, and I imagine to some degree, you know, the Patriots are trying to sift through that. Like, how how long can we play that position with it? Like, how long can we sit here and say, hey, look, let the facts roll in. Um, let us see what happens before we take someone's livelihood away. Let's make sure that it happened, which I think is fair. But then there, there becomes a point as an organization where the distraction and having to answer the questions um, and just the circus that, that is surrounding him at this point becomes too much for you to shoulder as an organization. And I think that's fair also. So, you know, that becomes the question from my perspective. I, um, this isn't about my opinion. I don't know. Like, again, if, if this is Antonio Brown uh, doing this to, to, to the young lady um, and he's sending the text messages, like, I, I don't support that in any way, shape, or form. It's ridiculous. And you clearly haven't learned from any mistake you've made and you're not going to learn. Like, that's just who you are. That's a shame. But I don't know that it is him. So I can't, I can't really speak to that right now. I do know that the Patriots at some point are going to have to make a decision on whether or not his distraction uh, is worth it. Is the juice worth the, worth the squeeze? Um, and I, I, they're the only people that can answer that question. So I totally agree with you. Um, but this is exactly what the commissioner's exempt list is for. When you have a situation where these types of accusations are made and they're that serious, where the commissioner, the NFL, can say, now I disagree with the whole thing. I don't think the NFL should be in the business of trying to decide who's guilty and who's not. That's a whole other conversation. Mm -hmm. But this is what it's for. And they just met with the first accuser for 10 hours this week on Monday, and they still haven't come out with anything. Either put him on the exempt list and say we're still investigating, and then speed up the process so he's not just hanging around. Like this is an urgent issue that the NFL should be looking at quickly. And then come out and either clear Antonio Brown and saying we have not found any information that would put us to suspend him or do anything other further, or say we're still investigating, keep on the exempt list. He still gets his paycheck, but he can't play on the field. Like do something. This limbo is just the worst for everybody because. Eventually, if this stuff is true, the league and the Patriots are going to look really foolish. And, you know, that's a risk that they can't really take because of the perception, some of the mistakes they've made with this, where just put them on the exempt list, do your investigation and come out with your findings quick, sooner rather than later. Say, hey, he's cleared or he's not, and then move on. Because when they keep bungling all these situations and these uh, issues, it makes them look really irresponsible and in, 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 inadequate, which they are, which is, again, that's kind of another point why I don't think they should be in the business of trying to play um, investigators. That's not their specialty. So why are they trying to do it? Uh, but that's a whole other conversation. All right. We'll see what happens. We'll keep you updated on that, as will CBS Sports HQ, if anything comes out from that story. Let's do some picks. Let's catch some stuff that we actually enjoy talking about, mm -hmm. which is the NFL. So we have a pretty good slate of weekends this week. Starting with Lamar Jackson, probably the two hottest quarterbacks in the league. Dak Prescott might have something to say about it, but let's just say these are the two hottest quarterbacks in the league. Lamar Jackson versus Patrick Mahomes in Kansas City. The Chiefs at home are a six and a half point favorite. Who do you like in this one? Mm, that was a tough game last year. It was one of the it's better really games last is. year. Um, <laughs> Chiefs had to come back. You know, it's hard for me to bet against Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs. Like I, I, I know. even when I think that it's going to be a close game, um, and I would bet against them, or I sit in like in a fantasy league. Like I always feel like a butthead the next day when they do what I thought they were going to do in the first place. So I'm going to take the Chiefs just because I would kick myself if I didn't uh, to cover. Uh, the best bet in this game is probably no bet. I don't love either side of this one. If I was going to take it, I would lean towards the Ravens. The six and a half is a big number in the NFL when you're talking about two good teams. I will be really interested to see what the Ravens defense does with Patrick Mahomes and that offense. And like you were saying, 
you could have games like the last one that the, uh, the Chiefs had against the Raiders, and they were kind of sputtering around the first quarter, and you're thinking, oh, this might be a game where they're sloppy or they don't get it done. What do they do? Four touchdowns in the second quarter. Like Mahomes goes off. They are right. that explosive and that scary. I probably would lean the uh, just stay away from this one because I don't have a good vibe, but I can't wait to see it unfold. I'm probably just going to sit back and enjoy that one, but I'll go ahead and take the Ravens with the six and a half, just a big number in that one. All right, Detroit Lions are on the road against the Eagles. Eagles are a six-point favorite. So here's the thing that's crazy about this number. I get the Lions, they're, you know, they got their first win last week after a tie versus uh, the Cardinals in week one, but the Eagles have almost nobody on the outside to have a deep threat with some of the weapons they have offensively out of the game. Uh, they're a six-point favorite at home. Carson Wentz banged up in that game against the Falcons. Look at this list. Alshon Jeffrey, Deshaun uh, Jackson, Dallas Goddard, all these dudes banged up significantly where they're questionable. Then you have Malik Jackson and Timmy Jernigan on the uh, defense side of the ball out. I'm going to take the Lions and the six points. I think the Eagles find a way to get it done. Maybe it's ugly. But again, six is a pretty big number in this spot. Yeah, I'm gonna go with you, Danny, uh, for all the reasons you just articulated. But like, it's hard to go out there and play without, you know, can't go out there hunting with no bullets in the gun. So exactly. The all right. How about the quarterback of the future for the New York Giants, Daniel Jones? They made the switch from Eli to Daniel Jones, playing against Jameis Winston, that Bruce Arians uh, led squad for the Bucks. Bucks home favorite, six and a half. Who do you like in this one? This is a tough one for me, but I think I'm going to take the Giants and, and, and Daniel Jones. Maybe it's because I want him to be good. Um, maybe it's because I want to see him, you know, kind of lead that team to a, to a, to a victory. I don't know that they yeah. will win in Tampa Bay, but I, I think that they'll keep it close enough. I think they'll be kind of slightly rejuvenated as an offense. I'm going to, I'm going to take the Giants, uh, with the points. I'm leaning with you. This is probably another one where there's just so much unknown. What are you going to get with Daniel Jones? But I think that's a big number in this one. Jameis wasn't exactly outstanding against the Panthers when the Bucks won, but he was good. Like, he didn't make that boneheaded throw. But who the heck knows what you're going to get from Daniel Jones? Yes, he was awesome in the preseason, which is great. But that's rarely an indicator that that play is just going to continue on. It's a whole nother ball game. And I know the Giants front office has basically bet their careers on Daniel Jones being the guy. So they must feel confident about him. I am not that confident until I see it on the game. But that being said, I still think it's a big number. So I'm going to take the Giants too. Uh, all right, moving through some of these other picks. Saints versus Seahawks. The interesting thing about this game is that Sean Payton has not officially made Teddy Bridgewater the starter, saying maybe Taysom Hill is going to be our guy. I can't stand this uh, from Teddy Bridgewater's standpoint. Taysom Hill is a gadget player. I don't think he's a franchise quarterback. So why are you undermining your quarterback? Hopefully, Raj, what this is, is the Saints playing coy. We don't have to. Maybe we can mess with the Seahawks defensively so they don't know which one we're going to prepare for. But ultimately, I think that uh, Teddy Bridgewater is going to be at the helm. That being said, I like the Seahawks laying four at home. It's a tough environment to play in. Their defense is good. I think Russell Wilson is going to have an MVP-type season. So I'm going to take the Seahawks playing at home. Uh, I'm going to agree with you on that. And whether it was Teddy Bridgewater or any other quarterback um, in the NFL backup, that is, uh, to not name the starters, not a ringing endorsement for said player. Um, so hopefully they've had those conversations behind closed doors and he's just told them, hey, this is what we're going to do, uh, you know, for the reasons you talked about, keep defense on his toes and so on and so forth. That's not a way to go into like your second string quarterback having to play for the next six weeks. All right, what about the Carolina Panthers? Cam Newton, questionable, most likely Kyle Allen, on the road at the Arizona Cardinals. Cardinals are a two-point home favorite. 
Panthers 0-2. If they go 0-3, Ron Rivera might not make it out of the month. Um, in this spot, who are you going with? No Cam. I know. I'm going with the Arizona Cardinals, no Cam. Even Kyler Murray, the rookie, yeah. and Cliff Kingsbury. Yep. The Panthers, to me, are a team that's just, they're on the cusp. They're either going to like show some fight, turn this thing around, or it's going to really go downhill fast. I'm going to say they might be nasty on the road. I'm going to say their defense gets it done. I don't know okay. why. I just have a feeling like the Cardinals, I think, are still kind of figuring things out. I don't know. I just have a hunch in this game, but I don't know. I don't love it. I don't have a good, I don't have a real confident take on many of these games except for the last one. All right, Rams at home, <laughs> maybe the best team in the NFC. Browns coming to team. That's your squad. They are officially the Cleveland Browns are Rajah Bell's squad for the year. Rams laying three. Are you going to take your Cleveland Browns after they got that ugly win against the Jets? Are you rolling with your Browns in this game? Yeah, dog. This is going to be the breakout show. This is going to be the game that we've all been waiting for. They got two in the books. All right. It hadn't been pretty early. Um, but we are back at the board. We are focused. We are digging into the film. We've had a good week of work. The Browns will win uh, against the Rams this weekend. I am fading you, and I'm fading the Browns. I'm going to say the Rams get it done in runaway fashion until I see Baker get more comfortable. He's looked a little bit off, just a little bit quick. And I think some of the pressure, not the pressure from us, the pressure literally in his face, they have to do a better job protecting him. I think it's taking its toll on him. If they do that, they have a chance. If not, they're going to get housed. So I'm going to lean towards the Rams in this spot. See ya. Have a good one.